Deb, I think you can start. Great. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome. This is uh, Clergy Conversations, a part of First Community Church, and this is a project of the Spiritual Life and Learning Center. Uh, my name is Deborah Lindsay. I am the interim minister of the Spiritual Life and Learning Center, and I totally get paid extra for having such a long title. Mm -hmm. um, that's a joke. <laughs> uh, but we're so glad you're here, and you are going to hear a marvelous, marvelous conversation tonight with author and activist Meg Wheatley. And she was selected by our Minister of Community Justice, Tim Van Sant, as someone who he would love to have an extended conversation with. So um, I know you're gonna really, really enjoy their conversation. Before we get to that, I do want to once again, thank you for being here with us and invite you to our next Spiritual Life and Learning Center event, which is called Exploring Hinduism. Uh, this is a project that we're doing with one of our beloved partners, the Spirituality Network. And Exploring Hinduism will be the afternoon of February 18th. And you can learn more about that, the where, the when, um, and all that sort of thing from, <clears throat> you can either go to the First Community Church website or you can directly go to the Spiritual Life and Learning Center website, and they'll get you to each other also. Um, so, but we would love to have you for exploring Hinduism if that's something you're interested in. So once again, our conversation today is with Tim Van Sant, one of the ministers at First Community and Meg Wheatley. We hope you enjoy it. And now I'm gonna throw it over to Tim and get the conversation started. Thank you, Deb. I appreciate that. And Meg, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here. I know you're I'm really happy to have time together. This is going to be good. Yeah, I know you're joining us from beautiful Utah. We had the chance to talk about that a little bit before yeah. we got started. So there's probably some folks that are watching, watching this or they'll watch the recording that have never heard of you and, and aren't familiar with your work. And as someone who checked out your Wikipedia page, and Wikipedia is always completely 100% correct, but you have a very exhaustive background. If you could sum that up and tell us a little bit about your background, uh, I'd love to hear it. Well, first, I'd like to ask if you can turn on your screens, because I can see all of you then, and that makes it much more enlivening for me. <clears throat> So I am many things, um, and now I'm old. And um, I was uh, describing uh, before you all came on that I am a perfect embodiment of UCCU in that uh, my lineage is, my mother is Jewish, so I'm Jewish by lineage. And the most influential person in my life was my grandmother, Irma Lindheim who was a strong, fierce, and very public advocate for the creation of the state of Israel. She ran for Congress in New York City. She was um, campaigning all the time. She was a writer. She lived on a kibbutz uh, for quite some time, a kibbutz that still exists, which is very unusual in current day Israel. And by the way, current day Israel would be enormously heartbreaking for her what's happened there but <clears throat> she was the dominant influence in my life but my father was Anglican actually just pantheistic the way a lot of English people are 
I really relate to that as well. But it was my grandmother who at the age of six said, Maggie, you need to be a writer. So she set that in motion and I am more like her than anyone in our family. And she still is a great, great inspiration for me. I had a great liberal arts education and um, never felt limited to study one thing. And that became, I became a consultant. I know corporations very well and then rejected them in the late nineties is not a place I wanted to consult to. I've had a deep faith that has materialized in many different ways. So I began as a pantheistic Christian with this Jewish grandmother and then became a mystical Christian in my twenties, really loved many of, of the Christian writers then. And then became a firmly Buddhist, committed Buddhist in 1997 and have done a lot of long spiritual retreats with my dear friend, sister and teacher Pema Chodron. Uh, we are very close and she led me on deep retreats for 10 years, every for two months every winter. I was away in solitary retreat, only speaking to her. And that really prepared me for <clears throat> the work that I then took on, which is to train leaders and activists as spiritual warriors. We call them warriors for the human spirit. <clears throat> I've been doing that work since 2015. Globally have trained maybe 300 or more people very rigorous training, not unlike a, form a, a spiritual formation process um, that includes meditation, mind-body awareness, and really what it means to take on a new role of, of protection and advocacy for the spirit of life, whatever their leadership position is. I've, um, since 2018, been uh, in deep communion with an Indian yogi mystic who's also a great worker out in the world. So it was a perfect marriage. Excuse me. And uh, during all that time, I married a widower who had five children, age five to 16. We then added two more. So I have raised a family of six boys and one girl. They have now blessed me with 24 grandchildren and 11 great-grandchildren. And, um, and I've written 10 books, each of which is on the same theme of can we really understand how life organizes and how we could lead a non-patriarchal, deeply self-organizing, empowering ways. And that's taken me out in the world for many years. And since COVID, I've been very happily doing everything on Zoom. <laughs> and looking back at those years of constant travel as like, what was that all about? <laughs> 
So I suppose I will travel again, but really my home is beautiful. I live in gorgeous, gorgeous mountains and uh, Zoom works for me. So, and I write also from here. So that's a brief summary. A brief summary. That was good. I think we could have talked about that for like the full hour. So thank you for providing that. And I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old daughter. So probably after this, we won't bore people with details. You need to teach me how to raise children past that age. So that would be great to hear. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I did want to remind everybody that's watching right now, if you uh, would like to put a question in the chat, I guarantee that we'll get to that question, but that is uh, available to you, the chat function. Pop it in there if something comes up that comes to mind as we're talking here a little bit. So you gave us a little bit of background. I'd like to talk a little bit about your current work and it's called Warriors of the Human Spirit. And I, I would venture to say, and I'm sure you've experienced this, that it's it's maybe a little controversial for folks. It's, it's certainly a big paradigm shift for a lot of folks. So I'd love to hear, you know, an introduction or or what that work is about. Great. And why I chose the word warrior is usually the question, right? <clears throat> so, first of all, I trained in the Buddhist tradition of the Shambhala warriors who are <clears throat> coming from the past at a time from an enlightened society that existed eons ago, at a time when in the prophecy it reads, um, the Shambhala warriors come forth at a time when great powers are threatening themselves with weapons of mass destruction and all of life hangs by a single thread. And our only weapons are compassion and insight. And we go into the halls of power where leaders are working and we try to dismantle the weapons of aggression and fear. But in my own <clears throat> understanding of that prophecy, which has rung true for me for over 30 years, probably 40 years now, all the Tibetan teachers will say that time is now, folks. I mean, you don't need a better description, right? When all of life hangs by the frailest of threads and great powers threaten one another with weapons of mass destruction. So we're here. And my work with leaders was constantly raising the question to them, how are you going to use your power and influence for good? How are you going to work on behalf of people? That was the earlier question. And now it's warriors as a class of people are always a very small group of dedicated people who train to preserve and protect whatever is asked of them. So in the past, it's always a historical role. It only happens when something is under threat. In the past, it, warriors arose, you think of um, samurai warriors, right? A great noble, noble call and role but they were protecting the emperor. They were protecting property. Um, we have warriors in the tradition of King Arthur. Um, and then we have 
terrible warriors in the tradition of the Crusades. But the role is to preserve and protect what must be protected at all costs. And as I observed and wrote about and traveled in the world, I'm not the only one for sure, but I saw so clearly that within organizations, within governments, the human spirit is under threat. People are being dismissed, ignored, violated, abused, disregarded, and there's no notion that we are spiritual beings with a great need to contribute and a great need to find meaning. So I use my extensive network of leaders, and I'm well known from all the books I've written about leadership, to call, I actually felt I was summoning people to a more noble role. How do you use your power and influence to defend people and increasingly the spirit of life with our ecological catastrophes now? It's a, a very ennobling role, and it requires, like all warriors, training. How do we not add to fear and aggression, which are the dominant forms of influence and control in organizations and in politics? And then now, how do we deal with this absolute insanity that's going on where lying, uh, cheating, betraying are just norm norms now for how people are together. And of course, I'm not even going to spend time characterizing the total destructive insanity of not only our politics we're leading here, but the polit uh, politicians everywhere. So we're under real threat and the role of training which continues, and it really is a formation process, so it doesn't end, but you take this role on knowing you have to have a steady mind, a grounded being, and a commitment to serve, not yourself, but the people who need your leadership or who need your presence. And it's all within the framework of we are in the last stage of collapse as global civilization, undeniable. We fit the pattern perfectly. And um, my last book, which is now coming out in a brand new edition, Who Do We Choose to Be, is based on face reality, restore sanity, claim your leadership role, so I'm I'm not a mass movement. I don't believe mass movements are possible among this level of spiritually grounded heroic leadership. But that's my work, and I'm joyfully doing it. Thank you. That's that's fascinating, and I love that, like you mentioned, you use the term warrior, and you talk about training, you talk about action, and that's. Um, I think a lot of people think uh, creating peace or, or anything like that is a very passive exercise where it, it's not an action-based verb. I, I, I keyed in on you talking about the collapse that, that is around us. And, and I know as part of your work, you studied 
collapse of civilizations um, over time. I'm, I'm curious in your research, what you found and how it relates to our situation today, or maybe doesn't relate, and there's something different about relate, our situation. Absolutely and perfectly. So there is a well-established pattern of the evolution and devolution of civilizations, not just a few. We instantly think of Rome, for example. No, every human civilization that is place-based, that is uh, creates the same manifestations, roads, irrigation systems, courts of law, uh, temples and religious ceremonies, because they're founded mostly on religion, uh, hierarchy, um, cultural places. I mean, we're just identical in the way we manifest, but it's also identical in the way we manifest going from high idealism, commitment to service over self, and gradually whatever the civilization, as it grows more affluent, as uh, businesses, mercantilism takes over, people demand more and more entitlements. There are more goods. There's a movement towards narcissism. And I'm not describing us. I'm describing what happens in this pattern. It was really eye-opening. So two things which reveal uh, our identification with this pattern is that at some stage, the it becomes a celebrity culture. And what's worshiped is sports heroes uh, musicians and theatrical people, actors. Well, that's happening now in our face, also, you know, really in our face. But this is true of ninth century uh, uh, Arab empire. It's true of what happened in the Aztec and the Incan. It's just we go from focusing on community, uh, caring for one another. And as the hierarchy increases, you're, you could go to the Chicago Field Museum and see this. They have a gorgeous display of the devolution <laughs> of cultures. But for me, it was important to not deny where we are because we still have incredibly important work to do which contributes to the well-being of communities. We can't solve the planetary issues. They're just too vast and they've just taken off. But my work now is can we mobilize at the community level? Can we develop support for people who are suffering so terribly from fear and anxiety and loss? Um, and that's where the role of the spiritual warrior comes front and center. So we don't deny what's going on, but we've created a new role for ourselves, which I think is relevant to all of you. You know, how can I be a place of peace? How can I be a light for others? How can I be a companion to those who are suffering? And I just took it to a different level of scale, wanting this to be true of people who are leading organizations. But the work comes down and down to how can we be a loving, 
clear presence for other people, period. I sound more and more like a preacher, by the way. Yeah, you sounded great. Actually, we have an opening. Okay, you like that? You can use that. You can use that in a sermon, right? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I think a lot of people uh, traditionally, when they think about making a change or working in their communities or even on that global scale, these, these huge ideas that we have, they rely on hope, which I would like to bring uh, into your perspective on hope. And, and I want to make a sort of a, I guess it's more of a paraphrase, but in one of the videos <clears throat> I saw that you said you, you learned that hope is unreliable and ambushed, sucks us into thinking we can make change. And when we don't, it creates fear, depression, and cynicism. So I think for a lot of people, that'd be a little surprising. And that's kind of the controversial comment I made earlier. So I'd love for you to kind of delve into that and why hope isn't necessarily or a good thing and, and could actually be a detrimental thing. So we can consult our own experience to understand the, the danger of using hope as a major motivator. So think about a time when you put your heart and soul into something and you hoped for a certain outcome. You had an expectation in mind. What motivated you was we really are going to create change here or create a better, healthier process or community or relationship even. And you put, you were so focused on the outcome and that was the key source of motivation. That's the kind of hope that I'm speaking of. And then what happened when it didn't work out? What happened Either it failed on its own because it wasn't well developed or someone came along and just said, no more funding. Uh, you know, we're doing something. We've gone in a new direction, something I hear commonly. Or whatever you were hoping to accomplish was swept away, either by your the own problems built into the plan or from outside forces, more and more, it's outside, ignorant, quite venal. I've started using the word venal these days because that's the only description for what I'm seeing in, in behavior of politicians and many, most leaders. So this relationship between hope and fear is the basis of all Buddhist thought and, and ways of being which is if you hope for something, you in, can't avoid bringing in its other side, which is fear. Fear of loss, fear of failure, uh, that then leads to things like exhaustion if we decide, well, we're just gonna work harder, or it leads to cynicism because you watched how other people didn't appreciate you and destroyed your good work or it can lead to real depression. Like I was so eager to contribute and help and make a difference and it failed. And then people blame themselves and get very, very depressed. So the antidote to hope or the antidote to um, hope, which always comes with fear, the antidote to that, what really motivates me and others, is clarity that what we're doing is our right work. 
And there's a wonderful quote by Václav Havel, who wrote quite a lot on hope. Now, he was a great artist, poet, theater person, and then he became the first president of the Czech Republic. Extraordinary man. And he wrote about that hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well. Hope is the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. And that's called right action in Buddhism. But it's just, you all know this place, I'm sure, where you just had to do something. You had to raise your voice. You had to start a project. You had to try and influence something. But after a very short while, the work itself was what motivated you, not whether you were going to succeed. And so I'm describing the lives of martyrs and saints and activists who say, I couldn't not do it. And after a while, it didn't matter what happened as a result. What was so memorable was the quality of our relationships as we did the work. And then if it didn't work, we were together enough that we could find something else. And so we, people, I've just watched this over and over, people become experimenters. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, let's try another way to influence the system or get legislation passed or stop this terrible violence that's going on. But we have to have um, much more grounded motivation that allows us to stay in the work of whatever our cause is, because we're going to meet, especially now, increasing disappointment and failure. And, um, you know, this is, uh, this is the great plague at this time in this country about gun violence violence against black youth, violence against any, uh, you know, people of color, it's not getting better. And it won't. So how do we stay in that work for the value of the work itself? Because we must stay in that work. But if we're looking, if we're basing our motivation, our energy on success, then we're setting ourselves up for for really despair, which is what's happening. You see it in a lot of, of activists now who are especially working on police violence and racism and sexism and climate, great despair among clients, climate scientists and activists. So I was interested, and again, this is so basic to Buddhist way of being in the world, don't pin your hopes on ever anything, just stay present. And in my own work, it's keep asking the question, what's needed here? Not what do I want to happen or what do I think would be meaningful for me, but what's needed here? And then you find ways to contribute. So this is what I'm describing as a way to be in a world that is increasingly violent, terrible and terrifying and yet we need to be the beacons of light we need to be the people 
that when others are around us will say, oh, I feel better being around you, you know, because you're calm or you're grounded or you're present for me. And that in itself is a great gift that we give to others, just to be a calm, healing presence for people. As the problems intensify and as our rage and grief increase, it ain't easy being alive at this time and having a caring, compassionate heart. But it's why we're here. Right. Yeah, that's so insightful. Um, how those ex I think I think a lot of people that have those compassionate hearts, they want to be an activist at a certain issue, want to be involved in their community, have those big hearts, and then but also have those really big ideas of of that change they want to make and. Um, in seminary, most of my work was community justice focused, social justice focused. My degree is actually in social justice versus a, a ministry in divinity. And they talked to us continuously about burnout. And I think a lot of that burnout comes from expectations not being met. And I think it's even um, more prevalent in people that are doing that kind of work than say, uh, I have a background in business. I, also, I was also in the military. For a little while, I feel like it's so prevalent in people that are in that compassion-based work. Has that been your experience as Very well? much so, absolutely. Um, compassion is one of the weapons of spiritual warriors, but there's another capacity that has to go along with compassion, which is discernment, insight, intelligence, where you, I mean, our hearts are broken all the time now, right? And you can look, I mean, what's happening right now in Syria and Turkey is just pure doomsday for those people. And all the political squabbling, the antecedents of the politics that are making it impossible to get a, I was just reading this before we came on. How do we hold that? Well, this, this has been my question for about five years. How do I hold the amount of grief for what I truly see going on in the world? And one has to be very caring and compassionate towards oneself that there are limits to what we can take in. And there are periods where I now realize I just had this when the earthquake, the day after the earthquake. Okay, I'm just going to be in despair today. I'm just going to allow in the despair. I don't have to fix me. I don't have to do something. I'm just going to, actually, I wanted to be in a fetal position holding my dog. He wasn't too keen on that for long. But anyway, but I know that if I just allow the despair, I won't stay in it. And I won't stay in it because I know me and I know my history. But at other times, it's like, no, no more news. No more news for a while. Or always get outside, you know, let life heal you. Or go play with a child. Or cook something or whatever, but we need to acknowledge rather than fix these moments when we are just overwhelmed by the suffering of the world. That's when we can be like Jesus or the 
the great bodhisattvas who wept when they perceived all the suffering we cause ourselves. And then extending yourself to someone else in, in greater need than you is for me always the solution. You know, like, okay, who could I call who would benefit from a call from me? <laughs> or who could I talk to? Just to get at from this, which is very interior to, okay, I'm here, I'm available. But as the uh, circumstances, and there's so many predictions of what February and March are going to be like for the world, and I think we're seeing it now full force. How do we keep up with this escalation of suffering and and human cause suffering, you know, from our leaders and uh, what's happening with the planet, just saying, no, nope, I work with different laws, folks. You haven't noticed that, but here, here are the consequences of violating my laws. We need to be prepared to be stronger and stronger in, in our interior grounded faith-based space. And then know that it's getting worse and worse. There's uh, there's no hope. I want to use that deliberately here. There's no possibility that things will improve in any of our lifetimes. None. But we can be prepared to be great presences, deeply grounded, faithful people who offer ourselves to one another. I mean, just like you would if you were in a, a real war. You know, our war is more subtle, but it requires the same kind of depth of spiritual grounding and faith um, to keep serving others. That's great. Thank you for that. And I imagine um, saying that to people is difficult when you say, Things aren't going to get better and people hold on to hope. My, my very first sermon, which wasn't that long ago, I'm pretty new to the game. We're talking months ago, but I started it with, we're not going to get rid of racism. We're not going to reverse climate change. We're not going to get rid of poverty. We're not going to make sure every person is fed. And I kind of went into, uh, well, those that's the truth, but we still need to have compassion and love for each other. So I'm interested, and I'm I'm sure you've heard criticism from people because that that's probably a lot for them to take in. I heard criticism uh, based on that message, and I'm just curious what you've heard from that. Yeah. Well, as you're starting out on this path, Tim, I can't help you with child rearing, but I can help you with this because we have to understand that. People not only don't want to hear the truth of what's really happening, and but to want them to hear the truth now is one of the things that it's too late. So, for example, you know, we're still teaching children and adults of how they can shift the climate dynamics. Well, those were set in motion decades ago and they're just playing out. It really isn't going to matter except with your consciousness. You know, 
of caring for Mother Earth. Yes, that's an important consciousness, but without the hope that it's going to create positive change. My own awareness, having been told for so long, when I wrote my first book in 2012 that showed where we are and how bad it is and it's going to get worse, even people in my publisher's office said, what happened to Meg? She was so hopeful and positive and giving us all these ways of leading that would create growth and well-being. What happened to her? And I would just say quietly, although I was quite annoyed at the time, have you watched the news? You know, have you noticed what's going on? Now, I think we're into a different stage, which is active need to deny what's going on. Because unless you wake up and accept what's going on and then find joy and communion and work that's in the moment, very personal, very community-based, you can find that. That's the essence of my work. And I also want to refer you to Michael Dowd, who is a minister. His website is called postdoom.com. And he has enormous resources for people that first you encounter the grief of realizing what's going on. And then when you accept it, like with any grief, you realize, oh, there's a lot of possibility here for very rich relationships. Yeah, we're not going to change the world, but we can certainly create healthy relationships. You know, all the squabbling you may be facing in a congregation or in your family or in your community, when you really look at it, it's like people stop it. You know, we need to be together. We need to be good, good spiritually grounded people because that's truly the meaning of life. It's not all these external circumstances, but I must say, as a species, we really have screwed it up royally. <laughs> and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's who has just written a new book, whose title I won't remember, but it's worth looking up about how we could think about our global issues and our current predicaments. But I quote him because years ago he was asked, so do you think there's life on other planets? And he said, well, I think there's a very strong case that they would have observed us and finding no signs of intelligent life, they just took off. <laughs> yeah. So, Tawana, thank you. The book is uh, called Starry Messenger. Have you read it? Yeah? Did it feed you? Nourish you? Yeah, I think it's it's worth reading. And again, it's someone who sees clearly what's going on and wants to appeal to our deepest human qualities of compassion and love and generosity for each other. He may have other agendas there too, but it's clear for me. 
This is about who we are and how we are with one another at this point. Yeah. Thank you, Meg. Yeah, I'm not surprised Tawana has read that. She's one of the smartest people I know, so there's no shock there. Um, I wanted to also, uh, Deb Lindsay just uh, DM'd me and said she had a really great question. So I want to give her that chance. I also want to give her a shout out for putting in the chat um, what venal means and giving synonyms for that. I didn't want to ask the oh, question. What, what's, silly, see, we've lived too long in our little bubble of innocence. <laughs> you know, I want to see what are those synonyms? Can you want to? Uh, they're far out of my reach now, but um, I knew that it had something to do with being very not nice um but it's closer but, to evil yes but i didn't sure. know it has yeah. to do so the cinnamons the cinnamons <laughs> the synonyms are bribable corruptible dishonest purchasable corrupt lacking in integrity well that's our so right that's our current political situation right it's all spot venal on. yeah okay. yeah spot on um <laughs> Well, Tim, I don't know if I have a great question, but I have a question. <laughs> so Meg, um, true confession, I, you've got me so right now that I almost don't know what to do with it. And I find that um, speaking just totally for myself, I am swinging like this, like yeah. one second I'm saying, oh my gosh, spot on. She's so right. I'm 100% with you. And then, and then I do this swing of like, and maybe this is the denial part, but I, I can't, I, I can't accept that there's no hope and I can't live without hope. And, and then I swing back over here and I don't know if anyone else is, uh, you know, on this swing. with feels me. pretty predictable to me. Let's start with when robbed of hope, because we think it's our primary motivation when someone like me or anyone says, no, you have to give up hope. And then you think, well, and, and I could refer you to an article I wrote in 2009 called Beyond Fear and Hope. You can find it on my website, one of you. Uh, we think, well, without hope, I won't be motivated. I'll just be a mess, right? That's not true. That's why I started with hope and fear are the same energy. And to be free of fear, to be fearless, we need to be hopeless. But to be fearless means that we will do our work with no fear of consequences. We'll do it because it's the right work. But this back and forth, I still experience it. Okay, because it's a terrible scenario of what's about to come, what's already come in the past few years, but what's about to come is much more dreadful with climate shifts and catastrophes. And now the political scene of constant war, you know, one of the big shifts from the Ukraine war, it displayed how many weapons each nation already had and it has led to a giving complete priority to military equipment. 
and militarization. So instead of acting as one species, when we had that glimpse of Earthrise from the moon in 1969 on Christmas Eve, we all thought it would change us. It didn't. And we're now in a more tightly bounded, conflict-laden weaponization of, of the world. And this always happens at the end of a civilization. A few of the other parts of the pattern are the elites take everything for themselves. What's happening with corporate behavior now? It's so far beyond normal greed, right? It's absolutely not caring one microgram for common people and our concerns. It truly is. The elites have just shut themselves off and they're grabbing what they can, thinking it's going to save them. That's quite horrendous and it always happens. The other thing that always happens, besides worshiping celebrities, the other thing that happens is internal conflict grows and grows so that the real enemy at the gates is ignored and eventually just walks in. Now, for many years, it's been clear to many of us that the real enemy is climate. We could have been working on this in the 70s and 80s when the information was there. We could have been working on gun control years and years ago. But these, this violence, this fighting within, this lack of caring about people and the elites just running off with everything they can grab, this happens historically all the time. It's not our failure that we're here. It's just a sign of where we are. Now, listening to that, Deborah, um, I just recently read the proofs of a new book that's coming out in June, and I got anxious and depressed by all the information I had written in there. I mean, I had a blind reader experience of, oh, my God, this is too depressing. Oh, what am I going to do? You go through that. It's just like grief work, right? You deny, you push away, you argue, you petition, you plead, and then you say, okay, this is where I am. And from that place, you look around and you can find a lot of good ways to contribute. But we have to allow this. And that's uh, going back to Tim, what I was beginning to counsel you on is more and more compassion is necessary from us to understand the dynamics that people are in when they just get a glimpse of the future or how terrible it is. They, I'm, I feel total compassion now, not for venal politicians, but certainly everyday people who want to deny climate change or don't see racism or don't see um, violence. I do understand that they are incapable of taking this in because they do not have the interior strength and faith and spiritual grounding. For them, it's all loss and disappointment. And, and so, of course, it can't be that way. 
you know, one of the things I realized when I was working with uh, business executives after the 208 crash uh, was that they were told of the coming catastrophe in financial markets. And because it was so catastrophic, they decided it could not possibly be. So the very nature of catastrophe leads to denial. Just because it's so terrible? Well, no, that would never happen. Um, so we're, we're learning a lot about us, our human natures, and our desperate attempts to hold on to this life. And then there are always the few people who rise to the occasions and decide. I, I want to give you this one quote from the historian who wrote so much about the stages of collapse, Sir John Glove. He said, um, at this time in every civilization, there are always only a few people and only a few people who understand that the in order to preserve community, self-sacrifice is necessary. And they are the ones who, this is his quote, who lift the banner of duty and service against the depravity and despair of their time. Um, and it's a very painful position. It's very rewarding. And in the end, you know, I will die satisfied that I did what I could to raise the banner of duty and service and comfort the suffering. So it's a very different world view and understanding from where we all started, but it's just, it's a wonderful role to play. You don't have to call yourself a warrior for the human spirit. You could just call yourself a good community member, a good Christian, a good faith-based person, and then you know what to do. Thank you, Meg. Um, we're getting short on time, so I want to give some voice to the folks that are in the chat. Um, I, have, I have two questions okay. I've seen <clears throat> thus far. Abby Jo asked, um, she finds herself thinking about what do we tell our children? Rates of anxiety and depression are rising in our youth at alarming rates. They are afraid. What do we tell them? Yes, this is a huge question. I always get asked this. I am working with one of the people who's trained with me, who's now working with teens in Amsterdam and Nepal as young warriors for the human spirit. And what he has found, and I found this with children have to be old enough, but not too old. So maybe age 10 to 15 is when give them opportunities to discover something in their community or in their church or in their school that they care about and get them, help them define what would be a good contribution here. It's interesting in his work, the children in Amsterdam who were 13, 14, wanted to work on homelessness because that's what they saw and that's what offended them and troubled them. So they're doing that. But the children in Nepal 
are being plagued by alcoholism in their families. So that's what they're working on. How to address alcoholism, how to create safe spaces for kids when they need to flee. So it's very interesting, but the, the work here is, it's for all of us, find local work where you can contribute and really see that you made a difference in a few lives or cleaning up something in your neighborhood or um, addressing a need. And don't be afraid of them at that, those ages of seeing suffering but then they, working with good adults, can create projects that really can make a difference. For the young children, this is a whole different. I mean, uh, there's one person in warrior training whose specialty is ego, eco grief in young children. And her work is do not educate them. <laughs> They're already knowing the disappearance of bees, butterflies, and polar bears just find ways for them to develop relationships with life, with nature, being out in the woods or caring for one, one species or taking care. So the, what's running through all of this is we don't want young people to see what's going on without having some way to express their love and caring by finding local projects. You know, it could be very simple, but um, but that's a solution for me too. It's a solution for all of us. How do I find, you know, how do I take it all in so that I can identify what might be a meaningful contribution? but not denying. Tawana, I just saw that you advised a book. What was it? I'm not reading the chat, so could you? And what's in that? Because I'm really opposed to telling kids they can save the world because they can't. So, but you found, speak up, you, you're on. You, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's Stillwater and Pew Save the World by John J. Muth. Um, definitely Buddhist inspired. And the point is that it is impossible to save the world, but by doing daily kind acts continuously, if everybody did kind, little kind acts, it turns into big kind acts. Okay. All right. So he, all of his books are really good. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you for that reference. And I'll, I'll apply a little forgiveness to the title. <laughs> but it is just think about how many times you see that, like, if you use this particular brand of something, you will contribute to saving the world, right? And kids get that to the max in their in their school programs around ecology and, you know, things we can do like no more plastic straws, get a your own straw. I mean, these are actually deceptions. I, I want children to fall in love and feel nourished by life. There are many ways to do that through gardening, through forest walks, etc. But to put this bullshit on them of 
if you do this and we do this, we're going to save the world. No, we're not. I just want them to love life and feel loved by life. And in that way, there are many practices to do that. So you're not a big fan of corporate branded activism? I'm not a big fan. I I'm it coined the word venal to characterize corporate behavior at this point. You know, there's a, a saying in Easter Island, you may be familiar with the big statues that mm. were made famous years ago by Tor Heyerdahl, who, who created a myth about them. But in fact, Easter Island uh, was a well-forested land and a thriving civilization. Thousands of people who gradually descended into conflict and cut down all the trees to make their uh, first their statues and then their crafts, their boats to escape. It was devastated landscape when Western men discovered it. And so the question came, who cut down the last tree? You know, for our oil companies, who's drilling the last well? <laughs> um who's cutting down the last tree in the Amazon or the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Congo, these incredibly essential forested lands. And that's, that's where we are, you know? So nothing that comes out of corporate is believable. And in fact, it's been exposed over and over again called greenwashing, right? Uh, one thing we all should know is that in the 1970s, Exxon Oil, then called Esso, had the scientific research that showed them that fossil fuels would pollute the earth and create this climate crisis. They knew that with their own science, and then they knew it again in the 80s. And instead of changing businesses, they chose public relations and false science to con deliberately confuse the populace so they could continue. And their behavior right now is outrageous. They're making hundreds of billions of dollars of profit. This is the elites taking everything for themselves, cutting down the last tree. Well, thank That's you. Yeah. I just want to sum it. That's a cause for great despair, grief, and rage. And it's also recognizing that's not going to change. It's already in motion. Then the question is, who do I choose to be in my community for those I love, for any greater cause that I can contribute to without expectations of success? Good work for us all, really. Good work for us all. Yeah, thank you, Meg. This has been great. Uh, I feel like we could talk for hours about this. Um, it's very challenging, and it's cha it's cha you know challenging for everybody that hears this. And I love that you kind of talked about. There's kind of a period of mourning as you're going through these processes, and absolutely, it's just uh, really uh, interesting stuff and a really big paradigm shift for a lot of folks, including myself, to think about. Um, we're at time and I want to be very respectful of your time, but I do want to give you a chance to mention where people could buy your books, find, uh, information on this warrior training, uh, where people, yeah, just, um, 
go to my website, margaretwheatley.com. It's set up as a library of resources. You can watch videos, podcasts, but pay attention under warrior training, which is its own button, top tab of the warrior song line, because that's a musical, hmm. well, I, I can't call it musical. It's uh, a combination of voice and sound expressing the warrior path. And it's quite a transcendent experience. I still listen to it and feel very, very proud of it. So there's lots there. Yes, yes. Uh, I've, okay. I've been delving into your brain yeah. a lot the past couple of days, and it's been it's been a fun experience and a challenging experience, like I said. Um, Abby Joe put that out there. I'll make sure that gets out to everybody else uh, as yeah. well. I know there's really great questions that were still in the chat we didn't get to. Uh, so thank you for participating, everybody that can make it. And once again, a final big, big thank you to Meg for making it here. Uh, this yeah, many blessings for us all. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you, Meg. Everybody, uh, appreciate it and have a good night. Well, thank you, Meg, once again. Certainly appreciate it. Well, I think your ministry is essential, actually. Thank you. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the, the issues you were talking about is uh, we've we identified three issues right off the bat. And it was environmental justice, it was gun violence prevention and racial equity. And that's the the, the stuff we've been focusing on. First off, I mean, that's enough. Right. <laughs> that's that's everything. But um, that's some of the some of the initial things that we've been looking at. Yeah. And how to hold that work with love and compassion and not feel constant rage mm -hmm. <laughs> right. in my path. And something we've been fighting too, and, and I don't know if this comes from, you know, more, uh, our, our congregation in this area is probably a little more fluent, more white. And I feel like there's, with that comes this expectation of making this big change. And I think that's been hard uh, for all of us to kind of realize, like, it's about reaching out to the community. It's about walking alongside the community. It's not about telling the community how to fix their problems. It's not even really about fixing that problem because there's probably a pretty good chance we're not going to be able to fix that problem, but it's the process and the love that goes into that process. It's being with, it's bearing witness. Being right. with is yeah. essential. Yeah. Meg, thank you so much. You know, the, as you were speaking, um, uh, and I have a question for you about your time with Pema. Um, children, but um, I, I kept thinking about hospice mm, people right. and how the approach is not we are going to cure the disease or prevent the death, but we are going to, um, I mean, there is the concept of a good death. Exactly, exactly. The, the hospice worker image was used in some of my work a long time ago about um, we have to hospice the old while we are midwifing the new. I've given up on the midwifing the new, now it's all hospice <laughs> work. But Michael Dowd speaks of hospice work and I know of several other people who are using that because it is the right image. It really is the right image, mm -hmm. yeah. Did you say that, were you at um, Pema Children's? Um, Campo Abbey. 
Yeah, in Nova Scotia, in Cape Breton. Cape Breton. In the winter. Yes, in the dead <laughs> of winter. Yes, in, but but I was there for six years in the dead of winter, and then wow. also did retreat uh, with her in Crestone, Colorado, where she lives, and still. Those talk about formation. Those were my formation experiences. I can imagine that to be true. Yeah. yeah. And she's still writing, doing extraordinary work. Her newest book is How We Die is How We Live. Mm. I highly recommend it. Barb, so, did you want Yeah, Barbara. I've been Stuart, loving. Don't cut, don't cut us off, Stuart. Yeah, Stuart, don't be cruel. <laughs> but I've loved being with the two of you and you pay such lovely attention. You have a beautiful fire behind you. It's been lovely to be with you. <laughs> well, it's wonderful to be with you as well. You know, and we our experiences in the past with you were equally incredible, but you your work has moved on to this level of incredible significance, <laughs> you know, for our whole culture for the whole world it really is so so important so yeah. thank you and it is a tough reminder you know but it's it is a reality and I think what you said Deb about a good death is so right I mean we it's all it happens over and over again obviously it has throughout the entire human history you know so what makes us different <laughs> exactly exactly we think we're exceptional and we're not going to die as a culture maybe we're not going to die as humans even you know and yeah. might be inv invested by billionaires and right. right the death is just ridiculous so we're going to engineer our way out of it <laughs> we're working on it. yeah but here we are in the great cycles of existence right yeah, yeah. That perspective yes. is so helpful. It really is. Very it really good. is. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, go to my website. I think you'll find many things to enjoy there. Yeah. Just poke around. Sure. Yeah. Well, Meg, the one problem is you haven't helped my hopes for having grandchildren at all, because this would not encourage my kid to have kids. <laughs> oh, it's a big question. Easy for I, you I, to say you have all those grandchildren. No, no, I have a particular perspective on the children coming in right now. Many of them have instant presence. Yes. I know two recent births where I'm just blown away by their beauty and their presence. Mm. And so my feeling having all these grandchildren is isn't true of all of them. But I'm going to believe that you came here for a purpose, just like I feel I came right time for now. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming they're come becoming, they're coming in for as right timed, although the influence of global culture and consumerism and social media is also something mm -hmm. terrifying to watch yes. in young people. So, yeah very much but they can really knock your socks off with incredible wisdom you know and they? whoa where did that come from <laughs> where did you know? that come from that's right where did that come from very true yeah <laughs> so well it's been delightful to be with you all 
such an amazing conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, we've had a big week with Tim too. So <laughs> it's been right on. I mean, yeah. this is this is what's going on. Right. Yeah, we Meg, we, not to take too much of your time, but we were at a, a peace march that we go to the first Sunday of every month. <clears throat> and at the peace, peace march, there was a police shooting that occurred across the street, like the back of our march was in that line of fire. Um, so it's been a long week of talking about that and being uh, being invited into that community to to have those discussions and what the next steps are. Um, so it's been it's been a big week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These events now are contemporaneous. You know, good and evil, black and white. I mean, it's very visible. You look at it. And what you're saying makes it even more important. What Tim is having us do is just be there right. with them and come back, continue to be with them, just be, be with them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Being with is the core verb here. I just am willing to be with you. Right. At this time. And then that does allow for self-healing. Mm-hmm. in the person's own spirit their own capacity to heal because they're companions you know for me the utmost the best scripture is whenever two or more there will i be also mm-hmm. yeah. so we're best. to be in this community where that's happening yeah it's great yeah. wonderful wonderful well, let us enjoy the gift of our work and our presence for one another. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And all of you with me tonight and each other. <laughs> yes. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank Good you night, all everybody. So much. Bye. Bye.